Thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fishery science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FisheriesPod. If you're of the generous sort, you can be like Ben, Janet, Robin, Garrett, John, and Jerry, who all support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you are able to support the show with either a recurring or a one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and even face masks on our Teespring store. If you feel inclined, make sure to check it out. Our guest today is Dr. Anton O'Sullivan. Dr. O'Sullivan started out at the Limerick Institute of Technology, studying civil engineering before continuing at Edinburgh Napier University. Later, at the University of Sussex, he began to study engineering geomorphology and then moved on to the University of New Brunswick, where he earned his Doctor of Philosophy and continues to work with the Canadian Rivers Institute, or CRI, a collaborative based at UNB but composed of hundreds of research associates, graduate students, and staff across the world with the objective of making every river a healthy river. With research interests that include real geomorphology, spatial analysis, hydrological modeling, soil mechanics, and remote sensing technology, Dr. O'Sullivan may perhaps be best described as a geophysicist. In addition, by way of thermal imaging and drones, he has also spent a considerable amount of time investigating thermal refuge for Salmonids in Atlantic Canada. As the keynote lecturer for the Polish Academy of Science Institute of Geophysics Methods for Ecohydraulics Remote Conference, we're fortunate to have him here with us today to talk about rivers, physics, and fishery science. Welcome to the podcast, Anson, and thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. It's wonderful to have you as a guest, especially having understand how cool your work is. Yeah, uh, it sounds like you're talking with someone else there, but that's all right. <laughs> so, as we get started today, words like fluvial geomorphology, eco-hydrology, and fluid mechanics can seem a bit abstract, or I think sometimes complicated for folks who might not have training in this area. Would you be able to explain a bit about what you do in terms of geophysics and remote sensing, and why those of us with skin in the fishery science game should be into this field? Yeah, that's a really that's a really good question. Actually, um, it's funny, right? Everything has got different nomenclature, different um, different things. But so, if we if you talk about remote sensing first, uh, there's there's different flavors of it. So, um, there, there's passive sensors and there's active sensors. So, a passive sensor just measures reflected energy off something. So, like your your phone in your back pocket. That's a passive sensor, um, unless it's got lidar in it. So, a passive sensor is just measuring emitted radiation off an object, and then that's how we see things. So in red, green, and blue, and then an active sensor would be um, so a sensor that has it sends out its own energy pulse. So think about our sonar cameras and our AERIS cameras that uh, yeah that we that we painfully went through. <laughs> so so they send out uh, their own signal and then they measure the reflectance back off it. So that that's all you're doing really. And the, and the beauty about remote sensing is uh, everything is is reflecting or absorbing energy on a planet. Everything in the universe. So you can just use that and if you ask if you ask the system the right question it might you might be able to get an answer that's somewhat coherent to what the system's doing and here just system can be um ecosystem or or whatever like maybe something in the water and then for geophysics uh it's just again you're using sensors so we use ground ground uh, penetrating radar to look at uh, underlying structures of rivers same thing again that's a remote sensing method it's just uh they're sending out, out a pulse and then just for the fluvial thing, then when people talk about eco-hydraulics, again, it's just, yeah, there's too many, we, we, we split things up too much. There's too many little camps. Just like, I hate when we give things names <laughs> like that because it kind of 
it, it pushes it outside the realm of someone's comfort where it doesn't need to be that way at all. So eco-hydraulics is just studying the, the environment, I would say, that uh, that fish are living in, if we think about that, or even benthic marker inverts or anything like that. You're just studying the hydraulics around around their environment. That's it. So I know you were sort of a salmon and fish guy from when we were hanging around UAB and CRI at the same time. And I'm wondering if you can talk a bit more about how this discipline and the work that you do and the amazing people and technology that you work with pertains to salmonids and cold water refuge in a climate where accessing that type of reprieve is paramount for these fish. Yeah, yeah so that's a really good question as well. Okay, um, <laughs> so if we if we, there's different lenses we can look at this through. So if we think about it temporally, um, we just published a paper there a couple of weeks ago in um, conservation physiology where we use... I don't know if you were around for that when we were doing this stuff, but uh, underwater cameras, I think you might have been. Um, we used underwater cameras and we put them in, a, in thermal refuges. So we used thermal inferred imagery to map out the thermal refuge, and then we could put uh, underwater cameras in them. And we were interested in, um, in juvenile salmon, uh, so one plus two plus par. So <clears throat> what we found was that, uh, or we conceptualized initially that um, these fish, they kind of accumulate stress through time and as they accumulate more stress, um, they end up, they, they'll seek a thermal refuge, right? So thermal refuge simply being an area that's colder than the main river, a cold water patch. And what we what we then conceptualized is that if you think about a somebody running around at a 400 meter running track, so if they run around at once, maybe they do it in 20 seconds. So I don't know how fast, a, a relative, right? let's say a minute, I don't know, maybe it's a world record, I don't know. <laughs> let's say Let's say a minute. And, uh, and then if they run it around again 10 minutes later, they're going to be slower, right? Because they're still not recovered. So that you see the, the that's, that's hysteresis in essence. So you see it in, um, in hydrology, you see in a lot of different disciplines that use these, uh, this hysteresis concept. So we use that. And what we found was um, within a summer, um, as the amount of time since, in a, since a, a stressful temperature event occurs, uh, the, the, the temperature thresholds can return to what the baseline is. So for us in the little southwest Miramichi, which you would be familiar with in New Brunswick, uh, the first, the first uh, onset or the first aggregation occurred at about 27 degrees Celsius for juvenile salmon, which is just wild. Um, but then it went as low as 24.2 as the frequency of the events increased over a window of time. Um, so that kind of speaks to the idea about how complex these things are temporally. They're, you don't simply have a, a static baseline. It will shift as a function of the environment, which, I mean, you think about it, it makes sense, right? Um, yeah, so that's that, that would be the temporal aspect. Then there's these spatial aspects of it. Um, did you know Alex Morgan when uh, when you were with us? Yeah, so Alex is my master student now for his sins, the poor guy. <laughs> so he uh, he published a paper as well in November, his honors project, and it was funny. It was on uh, July Friday the thirteenth, which is an awful number for an Irish person to try say. Um, but uh, so it was. I, I was picking up a lad from from Miramichi Airport. And uh, he was a prof from Alberta, and he he'd never seen one of these aggregations before, and it was just blazing hot. I was like, "Geez, look, let's let's bring over to Otterbrook, and uh, there's surely going to be an aggregation there." So we went there, and I always carry that thermal infrared drone in the truck just in case you see something. You, you don't know what you'll see, right? And I had um, like a, a Y side as well, just you know yourself. So um, threw it up, and what we ended up seeing just floored me. Um, the river temperature was 31.5 degrees Celsius, which is just insane, right? Um, and the brook, so Otter Brook, 
which is where you actually learned to fly a drone. Uh, yeah, right. Um, so that was uh, 20 degrees Celsius. So it's very, very groundwater dominant, um, deep ground, well, relatively deep groundwater, about 10, 10 meters below the, below the surface. And what was really neat was we saw that these fish were kind of stratifying or, or that they were, I don't want to say stratifying because it kind of may confuse people about temperature. But if you look at, at the, the thermal plume, they were, they, were, they were kind of structured with different age classes. So, yeah, it was really neat. So, so the adults, there was two or three adult salmon there. They were at the very front and they had the best position, like so, yeah, the best position of the thermal refuge. Then you had brook trout and two plus par. And then if you, as you go further down where it gets warmer and a bit shallower, you had one plus par. And then you go down further again and you're young of the year. Yeah, so that was pretty neat. And um, and then there was this little pocket just above the brook where it was super shallow, probably seven centimeters deep. And there was a bunch of uh, young of the year hanging there. Uh, and this is kind of confirmed. Um, so a bit of a shout out here. So my, my future wife did her PhD at this site too. And she saw something similar in uh, 2010. And with those young of the year kind of segmented from the adults, uh, so there's these little niches that we're occupying. Um, but yeah, so that's, again, just showing how you can integrate that technology. And then we did another paper, and I'll shut up then, and you can ask me something else. But uh, <laughs> so that we did another paper um, on an area called Blackbrook. And and this was kind of the idea about the um, the spatial temporal variance there. So uh, what we did was in August uh, 24th, 2020, I went to the site, and we were trying to collect a... Um, ADCP data, so bat, uh, for a bathymetric mapping um, um, thing we were doing throughout the southwest Miramichi. Um, but geez, when we were there, I was, it was just polluted, like hundreds and hundreds of adult salmon. Um, so, so again, I had the drone with me, of course. So I threw it up and I took X, Y, Z measurements and everything else. And then I was like, Frig, I wonder if it stays like that when the temperature drops back. Um, uh, so I went there. I can't remember what date it was when the temperature was about 17 degrees Celsius in the main river, uh, and these fish had totally abandoned that area. But they were selecting for areas, uh, when, you, when we built the bathymetry map and the hydraulic models, um, they weren't selecting for the deepest areas in the pool. Um, they were selecting for these areas that were associated with different um, um, hydraulics. So that's kind of the eco-hydraulic thing. So there was, they were always present when there was a boulder there with certain velocities and depths. Um, but when there was no boulder there and those velocity and depths existed, they weren't there. So it kind of comes back to that idea of bioenergetics for the adults. They're not eating food, so um, they're obviously going to hang in the place that's most bioenergetically efficient uh, or less expensive, if you think about it. That is unbelievably cool. And just, I guess, goes to show that you should always keep a drone handy, eh? I know, right? <laughs> So revisiting the Canadian River Institute's sort of main objective of making every river a healthy river, does the work that you do lend itself to a generalized framework in terms of how to do that in Atlantic Canada? Or are you finding that it's really dependent on the particular and unique conditions of different systems in Nova Scotia as opposed to New Brunswick, for example? Yeah, that's an awesome question too, Reed. <laughs> um, okay. I shouldn't be saying, yeah, they are really good questions though. Um, yeah, so I think you can develop frameworks, but I, I, you know, we have to be careful that we think about these areas as a cookie cutter thing where you can just take this design and put it on this river. Uh, unfortunately, the ecosystem doesn't work like that, right? Um, it's just each system is kind of a, a character onto itself. It's like its own personality. Um, but there are things that we can design for, and this is actually a paper that I'm working on with uh, with Val Ule. Uh, Val is down in um, NOAA. 
in Maine, um, Francine Measure, Chris Sullivan, um, who else was on it? Tommy. So we're working on this kind of idea about bioenergetics. So if you think about this, and I'm an engineer, <laughs> and I, I, I come by fish stuff. I'm, I'm not an expert in fishery stuff. I like to fish. That's kind of my my thing. Uh, so I, enough, I probably know enough to be dangerous. But um, if we think about these augmentation projects, not from the viewpoint of us as humans, but if, if this is, it sounds silly, but to ask the fish what it wants. So for instance, um, my company, I'm kind of giving a shout out to my company now because I'm not selfish. But uh, so I have a company, O'Sullivan Eco Hydraulics, and <clears throat> we did an augmentation project uh, this past summer. And, and, and the whole idea of that project was to design um, or to augment the thermal refuge so it would be bioenergetically um, um, favorable to the fish. So by doing that, you take into account these eco-hydraulics or, or essentially um, eco-hydraulics being if you put a boulder in this depth and velocity, what happens to it? Um, and then thinking about so thinking about how the fish will use that, if they will use that. And then you have to bring in, if you're uh, doing thermal refuge work, you have to bring in some understanding about thermal um, mixing in the plume. So how can you limit that? And then, of course, you have this whole idea about the geomorphology, which is just the straight shape and structure of the stream. So in New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, we've got um, alluvial bed rivers, but there's a, we have ice. So you have to try design for the river to, to get through the winter and then have the ability to transport whatever sediments are there so it doesn't kind of clog up the refuge. Uh, so it, it's a complicated thing, but if we view it in, from the, the viewpoint of the bioenergetics of the fish, I think that's what we need to do. So the framework needs to be focused on the fish, uh, the species of interest, rather than anything else. Um, and that should be the template of the framework. So in my recent Anton Google Scholar Twitter deep dive, I came across a paper <laughs> from last year that you were first author on, and Dr. Tommy Linensari, Dr. Kurt Samways, and Dr. Alan Curry are also listed as authors. So seeing right. all your names together, the fact that the paper has the words salmon peloton is less surprising. But in the paper, <laughs> you talk about how mature Atlantic salmon are experiencing hydraulic habitat shifts as a result of yeah. behavioral thermoregulation. And I was Mm -hmm. If you could tell us a bit more about what piqued your interest in this particular vein of research and why you think that despite the mounting increase in conservation and restoration projects, sort of in this discipline, thermohydraulic habitat use remains for the most part overlooked. Yeah, and even that's, so that's kind of what I was speaking about with this Black Brook area. So um, it's super interesting, right? So I've been looking at, again, the caveat here is that I'm not a biologist. I know enough to be dangerous, all right? Um, so... Um, I've been looking at like the literature just on adult salmon, like Atlantic salmon here, like hydraulic habitats, and and folk are typically say they like um, they like deep pools and they like areas where there's protection from predation and all these things. And, and so what I did, and I've been doing it for a while now, is just going out to these sites, flying them with drones, and kind of just looking at the fish, like not even trying to collect data. Just uh, I'm a loser. I just <laughs> look at the fish. But um, so if you just what I was noticing was that they weren't obvious, they weren't always in the deepest areas. And in some instances, they were just in, in, in just pure unprotected. So what, am I, what do I mean by that? Like in the main river, there's no tree cover there. There's nothing there. So they were hanging out in areas very, very close within a meter of boulders. Um, and that's kind of what drove me to that Black Brook idea with the happenstance that I, 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 I went there to collect uh, discharge data and I saw this. I was like, Frig, this is cool. So let's dive into this a bit more. So, so that's what drove it. And really that there was a lack of fish 
in the area so that it was the, the depth in, uh, during the days I was there was about the, the deepest part was about two meters deep. Miramichi uh, is not a very deep river. Um, it's very wide, uh, just, just due to the, the past glacial processes there. Very wide and actually relatively shallow, like in contrast to rivers that you see out in BC or uh, even the rest of Gish up in northern New Brunswick, much, much deeper, um, deeply, deeply sized rivers. Um, but so, so I don't know if it's a, if it's a localized phenomena or if it applies to the rest of Gish, but so that's kind of what drove that. And, and for that paper, that idea about the salmon peloton. Um, so I don't know, if folk here, uh, <laughs> folk here know what um, um, about cyclists when they're. So if you have a sprinter in a cycling pack, they, they they go on these pelotons. So you have the sprinter in the center of it, and and the reason the sprinter is in the center of it is because they're trying to protect that sprint sprinter. The other cyclists are trying to protect that sprinter from um, aerodynamic drag. So if you're in the center of the peloton. Uh, there's some lovely work done by a couple of Dutch folk. Uh, I think it's Block et al. 2018, I, I think. But they did a bunch of um, work, and they were finding that the difference in drag from the front of the peloton to the to the center of it, uh, it like so, so percentage of drag that the 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 cyclist at the front gets about 85 percent of the drag, and the cyclist in the peloton only gets 15 percent. So I was like, these fish are, and you see it in geese as well, right? Um, so that was super interesting that there was seen to be this pattern. And then so Tommy and I are working on something right now. Uh, we've data from that day as well. We didn't publish because it was probably too much. But we did a, uh, a subset where we um, actually extracted the, the, the length of the fish from the imagery, from the drone imagery. And sure as hell, uh, the biggest fish are in the center of that peloton. So the big fish got the best positions. <laughs> the papers that you guys crank out are just wild and they're so cool. <laughs> like, congratulations on the company by the way i didn't say that oh yeah cheers <laughs> yeah yeah and it's the company is like uh it's yeah it's just this idea about working with nature so yeah i have a mentor of mine bob newbury he's an 83 year old hydraulic engineer and we, we could talk about him until the cows come home so uh this is a segue now and i apologize if i'm derailing you but this is worth worthwhile to talk about so uh he works with the okanagan um first nations alliance out there um in in bc and uh, i just so my company got another contract to work with uh carrie long um or Carrie Alex, excuse me, she goes, I know she's just an absolute gem of a human as well. Um, but uh, she she did her master's with uh, in, in UMB studying, again, hydraulics of spawning habitat of salmon. And what Carrie found was that uh, there were certain hydraulic um, characteristics mapped by a fraud number um, that would that could explain the spawning habitats of, of salmon. Uh, it worked for adult salmon. Excuse me, it worked for Atlantic salmon and it worked for um, sockeye salmon. So in in the Okanagan River, river excuse me, it's um their, their sockeye numbers. So this is the only kind of a tributary left in Columbia River that's uh, holding the sockeye numbers, which is just crazy. Um, and Penticton, for those who don't know, it's a it's a desert area, um, and there's a lot of vineyards out there. So they hold back water by these vertical drop structures. This is about thirteen along the river, and um, uh, they use it for irrigation. So Bob Newbury carry the First Nations um, uh, out there, the Okanagan folk, um, develop this kind of it's called a fish water management tool. So their number of sockeye were down to about two to five thousand a year and then they so uh, carrie and bob they designed uh, another folk of course I, I don't want to leave anyone out but i, I i'm, I'm kind of not from there so i'm just a uh, tiptoeing around that but uh 
um, they 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 uh, they designed these spawning grab spawning platforms, and they found that or it suggested that if you keep the discharge at ten cubic meters per second during spawning run for for sockeye, that this would induce the hydraulics that would initiate spawning. Uh, yeah, on the bed, so just uh, development of reds. They put this tool in place, and there's other stuff going on, of course, as well. But uh, their numbers are up to about I think they hit six hundred thousand returners this year. So that yeah, so this idea about the eco hydraulics um, and how you can give the fish what they need is really quite something, uh, and that's like people who are far smarter than I came to that. Uh, as I say, Carrie and Bob, but uh, yeah, it's some cool work going on going on in the west coast of Canada for sure. That's unreal, six hundred thousand salmon. That's like a number beyond my wildest dreams. Oh, and and this is like in a, a 34, 37 kilometer stretch of river. It's just mind blowing. Like you get into density dependency issues now, I guess, but I mean, bloody hell, like that's a good problem. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I ever could have experienced out on the East Coast. Holy cow. Yeah, no. (laughs) So in light of talking about some of the efforts unfolding in New Brunswick to conserve and protect remaining salmon populations, I'm curious as to what it was that drew you all the way to Fredericton, New Brunswick to pursue your PhD. Well, I finished my master's and um, I was going to go work for a geotech company. In Van- I, I, I wanted to move to Canada. Um, so I, my, my background is I lived in America for, for about six years and that was really neat. Um, but then like it was kind of, it sounds crazy, but or stupid or silly or whatever. But I used to always watch documentaries as a kid with my father and, and you'd always see like just these boreal forests and stuff like that. And I thought it was just amazing. So I, when I grew up, I knew that that was Canada. So I kind of was like, well, geez, I'd like to live there. So I, I Googled geomorphology, <laughs> river geomorphology and uh, Al Curry's name popped up and I gave him a message to do a master's there actually uh, in, at UMB. I didn't even know where New Brunswick was, but to do a master's there first. Uh, I didn't hear back from Al for a while, so I ended up getting a scholarship to do a master's at the University of Sussex, which was really awesome town as well in southern England. But then after I, f- I f- kind of finished towards my master's, I was like, geez, I like this research stuff. So then I emailed Al again. And I said, look, have you got any PhDs? And I was like, well, I got this postdoc that could be a PhD using thermal infrared imagery. And at the time, I didn't know what the hell that was. But I was like, oh, this looks sexy. I'll, I'll do this. Um, so that's kind of that's what happened. And I tell you what, I just absolutely love Eastern Canada. I feel it sounds silly, but when I go back to Ireland from here, I actually feel homesick for New Brunswick, which is profound. Yeah, it's weird. And so much so, my brother just moved over here in August, and he now loves it as well. So, yeah. That's awesome. Very cool. Yeah. So, going back a couple years in your publications, you did some work that was shared in Ecology and Evolution in 2020 regarding the mm-hmm. of smallies, or smallmouth bass, into yeah, the yeah. lake. Can you talk a bit how you used eDNA, or environmental DNA, as a method of potential escape detection? Yeah. <laughs> so I did a, a, a workshop out in Idaho um, with a, a guy named Dan Isaac, uh, was Aaron Peterson and Jay Verhoof. So when I was doing my PhD, this guy, Dan Isaac, was kind of like um, the person I looked up to quite a bit. He did a lot of string temperature modeling. And when I was out there, um, he was telling me that he has been starting to use eDNA stuff. Well, or his, the folk he, he was been working with, I think it was Michael Young or something like that. Um, but I was like, geez, that's cool. And, uh, and he's like, yeah, you should do that too. And it's like, you need some ecology data for your, for your string temperature stuff. And I was like, yeah, you're right, man. So, um, <laughs> so then I, I, I came back and I, um, I, it was funny, actually. I said to Al, I said, I'm going to go do eDNA. And I mean, you know me, Reed. And for anybody who doesn't know me, I've, uh, 
like get derailed by stuff and Al was trying to keep me um in line but uh I was pretty stubborn so I I, I still went Al said no don't do the eDNA stuff just focus on your on your own work and I still did it <laughs> I love Alan <laughs> he's got the patience of a saint but um so I, I got funding from the WTF, uh, the Wildlife Trust Fund in New Brunswick and the Atlantic Salmon Conservation Fund. And really what was driving that, so just a bit of context here, was in 2008 and 2009, um, uh, Canadian Rivers Institute, uh, along with uh, uh, the province of New Brunswick, detected smallmouth bass in Miramichi Lake. Um, and then there was a bunch of, it, it's a, quite a hot topic uh, politically. So as an immigrant, I like to stay away from that stuff. But uh I kind of want, if ecologically, I was quite interested to see. Okay, no, nobody has looked outside the river for the, in the main river for these things. So uh, we took samples in the lake itself, <clears throat> and then we took them along uh, the lake brook, and then we went upstream, um, quite far upstream, and we were saying, okay, if these fish are coming out in in the river. Uh, do they migrate up or down? So that's an interesting biological question, I guess. But then it was also, if they're going up, how far are they going up? Because if you go further upstream, there's really important um, spawning grounds for uh, sea run brook trout, which, whose numbers are actually shockingly uh, 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 low right now in New Brunswick. Uh, we need to do something about that. Uh, they're actually lower than what we would see uh, relative to even Atlantic salmon. But it's kind of brook trout aren't on people's on people's radar. Um, but anyway, so we went we went upstream of the of the mouth of the brook and downstream, and uh, then we, we we kind of went into the Taxus River because there was a report, um, which is way way downstream. There was a report in CBC at the time that somebody had caught a smallmouth bass at the mouth of the Taxus River. Uh, so we were like, Frig, we best we best uh, look at that too. And then of course you take controls and what have you. But yeah, so we ended up finding, sure as hell, that uh, there was a signal in the main river, even with all the bells and whistles of limitations with eDNA. Uh, I think it's quite powerful for absence presence work. Um, understanding that it's highly lim- it's there's many many limitations with it. Um, but yeah, we found those fish there, and we published that paper. So we submitted it and published it, and then following prior to excuse me the 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 publication of the paper we got a call um from the miramichi sound association one of their members had caught a smallmouth bass down at mckeel uh, camp which is um kind of similar to where we found the edna signals uh, the strongest signals in the river um and just uh, these weren't very strong signals it was like uh so the ct values for those for anyone who's into edna stuff was a 39 to 40 so you're really at the upper like you're pushing it but um it, this was comparable to what was in the lake so we were like okay there's something we had three of those that were like that three spots that were like that and we were like there's probably something here um and it, it begged more kind of investigation of course but uh yeah so we ended up um al curry went in and uh it was al curry actually who had actually took the photograph <laughs> um he took the photograph of the smallmouth bass uh in 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 the in the pool and Sure as hell, yeah, there was smallmouth bass there, and and the rest is history. Hyper hyper political uh, topic right now, and that's when I exit stage left, of course. <laughs> exit stage left. That's funny. Yeah. No, it's certainly a hot topic, man. I can sort of that mm-hmm. from the lab. Yeah, exactly. You know better than anyone. Yeah, that was that was a time. Holy cow. Yeah. So, as a new host with the Fisheries Podcast, one of my goals is to highlight sort of the interdisciplinarity and de-siloing of like ontological and practical niches in this field. And I think talking to you is a great sort of jumping-off point with this. 
because at least before I met you, my sort of naive mental conceptualization of conservation and ecosystem interactions and behavioral ecology didn't necessarily include things like fluvial geomorphology and sediment distribution. With that said, mm-hmm. I'm wondering if there's any other cool projects on the docket for you or that you've worked on in the past that relate to things like salmonid management and river restoration that sort of demonstrate how physics, for example, can play a huge role in conservation biology. It's, it's funny, you know, like we, we do these things as scientists where we kind of, we forget about the folk who came before us. And like, um, I read really old papers because <laughs> I think people were thinking about this. Well, not not think, I know they were. Um, and we get kind of wrapped up in, in the advancement of technology, but we're kind of losing out on the, and there's a paper in Nature that came out about this recently, uh, that we kind of get focused in our silos and the advancements in science are actually declining through time. But if, if like there's really, really nice papers out there that you could go back in time. So Noel Hines, um, The River and Its Valley, um, kind of spoke to this. And, and the reason why Noel Hines, so uh, for the folk who don't know who he is, he was this benthic macro invert guy that really saw the connectivity between um, the river and the landscape. And interestingly enough, so he would have known this guy, Bob Newbury, that I know, who also is buddies with this guy, John Cherry, who's a groundwater wonk. Uh, John Cherry and Al Freeze have a, a book called Groundwater Hydrology. It was the first ever written, and it's got like thousands and thousands and thousands of citations. But I believe Noel Hines uh, used to chat with John Cherry about groundwater stuff. So he was even at that point in the 70s trying to reach across uh, and and feel out things. And even further than that, if you go back, so a bit of New Brunswick bias here, but there's a, a this this botanist from New Brunswick, William Francis Ganong, um, who's just Ganong Chocolates, actually, that's his family, that was his, uh, his dad and his uncle. But he was a botanist and he went out in nature and he was a naturalist, really. He paddled all of the rivers in New Brunswick and actually mapped them for the first time. He was the one who did the border between uh, the US and Canada um, uh, from the New Brunswick main side. Um, and he also did, he, he was the one who who went to the First Nation folks and did the nomenclature of place names. So he wrote all of these things down. Uh, so for instance, um, uh, there's a really nice resource published by a, a First Nation group. I can't remember who, who they are. Um, the name escapes me, but they kind of took Ganong's work and digitized it, which is really neat. But if you look back to him even, see, he's a botanist and he's starting to think about the geological evolution of New Brunswick. Um, he links that some of the rivers in New Brunswick actually used to flow over to PEI in the, like, pre, um, just after the glaciers melted. Um, so you could essentially walk across to PEI there. Um, of course, this is interlinked to Nova Scotia then as well. Um, and he used to be even looking at raised peat bogs and like just the guy was all encompassing, right? Like he, he wasn't in a silo. And I think Hines was like that. And there's another guy, Ward and Stanford, who were both like that. They're kind of benthic macro invert guys. Um, another, another folk like Fauch is another one. And there's like Christian Torgerson. So, so there's all of these things that are, uh, that are there in, in the back end. And then um, towards this idea of interdisciplinary, right? Uh, there's a, um, uh, a lady named Gail Ashley kind of came up with this term uh, critical zone. So the critical zone is um, from the essentially uh, the fresh bedrock up to the top of the tree canopy. And this is where all life occurs. So since then, you, you kind of see over the last kind of decade or so an evolution towards folk trying to integrate in these interconnected processes. Um, and you see it in forestry and you kind of start to see it now in fisheries. Uh, we've published quite a few papers on it now. And we published a paper last year called the waterscape continuum concept where it kind of it, it so the river continuum concept i'm sure folk are, or know what that is the Vinot uh, 1980 paper but 
that river continuum concept is wonderful. I think the best thing it did was it, it, it allowed people to expand their minds and think about um, how systems operate. But if we actually lean into it more holistically and, and the fact that what we see in the streams is a resonant effect of what's underneath the ground um, and the interaction from the valleys that are, that are surrounding it, uh, we need to not think about things as as being so for the example with the river continuum concept it would you'd perceive that streams would warm going downstream that doesn't always happen a really nice paper by amy fullerton 2015 spoke to that we found the same thing um so again if you, we have to get out of these silos and start to look at interconnectivity and it's simply based on physics really uh, across uh, the entire landscape or what i would term a waterscape um yeah so that's kind of a long long-winded answer to that question <laughs> and something i used to see with the linen sari lab is low water levels during our field season from the end of april to around early september and i know in this area you've mentioned we typically expect shallower levels anyway but mm -hmm. it was actually my first year at unb you gave an interview with cbc that discussed low water levels the resulting rise in water temperatures and how these conditions don't affect only fish but bacteria and bugs and plants as well so like many people, I imagine, who live and fish in close proximity to where you do this work, I'm curious about your opinion on how species like salmon and trout, like we sort of discussed, and bass, which are huge players in New Brunswick, will fare given the current climate situation. So in the CBC interview, you rightfully say that there's a ceiling to their resilience in the face of thermal thresholds. And I suppose I'm just wondering if you think we're on track to just boil fish alive. So that was 2017. Um... So since then, I've done time series analysis on discharges in New Brunswick. So 2020 was, was one of the lowest uh, discharges we've had in uh, since about 1918 on the Southwest Miramichi. But, but the point here is that these things have happened in the past. So that kind of got me thinking, well, Frig, if that has happened in the past, I started thinking about where all these fishing camps are. And all these fishing camps, the good ones, they have one common feature, and that's a cold water brook. So I do wonder, so how long these fish have been utilizing these thermal refuges for? It's probably been going on for a long, long time. So I'm more positive in the future than I otherwise would have been. I think, you know, I, I try to be more positive, otherwise you'll just get depressed. <laughs> but, um, but then there's, so the idea of boiling fish, I wasn't aware of how plastic these things are. So I've got a master's student right now, Elise, and what she's trying to do is trying to figure out um, well, so I'll, let me go back there a bit. So uh, Emily, so um, my future, my future wife, as I say, uh, the poor woman. But um, so she did some work on the little southwest Miramichi, which is in so which is central New Brunswick, and also in the uh, the Uel River in Quebec, uh, which is further north. And you would expect, just based on latitudinal gradients, that the the fish from the northern river would have a lower thermal tolerance than the ones in the southern river. And that wasn't true. So the ones in the UL River, the juvenile salmon par, were actually aggregating at about 28 degrees Celsius, whereas Emily's fish were going at 27, so further south. So what that is linked to then, well, that, that, that tells me two things. So it tells me that there's plasticity in the species. So I don't know, there, there has to be an upper limit, but I don't know what that is. And then it also tells me that this idea of latitudinal controls, for sure it's there, but we also need to consider, again, what I would consider a waterscape. So if you look at that river in Quebec, it's underlain by um, shadow bedrock, but it's 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 not very hydraulically conductive, so it can't hold a lot of water. And maybe it, even if it is hydraulically conductive, so it can hold water, you need that incision into the landscape to kind of unlock it. So you have these fish that are adapted to their waterscape setting. 
So that's one thing. And then the plasticity, the ceiling, I don't know what that is. I'm not a physiologist and I'd never claim to be. But but now we have a student, Elise, who's working on the Miramichi again. And she's going to be look, comparing the Miramichi to the Restigush. And the Restigush, uh, for those who don't know, is a much colder river than the Miramichi. It's very deep. So its thermal capacity is higher than the Miramichi. It's in very incised channels. And the, the bedrock around it, it's shallow, but it's very, very fractured. So those incised valleys into it will... Uh, kind of intercept groundwater flow paths and you have this diffusion of groundwater coming into the into the main river so if you couple those two things so the thermal capacity and the uh that coupled with the groundwater deep groundwater you have these lower temperatures so elise is now going out uh, she she has some data but i'm not going to talk about it yet until she gets her stuff out uh we, we need two years of data to be confident but she's trying to figure out if the salmon par from the rest of Goosh aggregate at a lower temperature even than the Miramichi ones. And, and, and if that is true, well, then that kind of makes things a bit more difficult for management because if it does tend to be true, then we have to think about managing fish species, not only at the river, river scale. Um, so you'd have to almost go reach by reach. And, and it's, it's not feasible to do that, of course, but you may have to think about, um, for instance, if you collect a thermal infrared data, so like Amy Fullerton has done, you could use those thermal profiles to kind of say, okay, at this, this is the average temperature of these fish, and this is the, the experience, and this is the maximum temperature. So can we get some kind of a, a key or a rubric where we can go, okay, this is there like the um, physiological thresholds or whatever? So again, this idea of plasticity plus the waterscape setting, I'm not, I think there would always be Atlantic salmon in these systems. It, it, it's going to contract. If, if the climate keeps them warming the way it, it is. But I, I think before I was very fatalistic about it, but I'm not anymore. I, th- I, I'm some, I think we should be continue with conservation and try to protect these areas, um, try to integrate different techniques, different disciplines, and I, you know, keep positive. Otherwise, if you don't have hope, you have nothing, right? I think it's normally a climate 911 or like you just hear doomsday for all these species. Yeah. You hear a different approach yeah. in this field. As someone who's benefited greatly from people like you sharing your time, advice, and expertise, as I cut my own teeth in the realms of science and academia, I want to ask if you have any advice for younger researchers who may be at a crossroads with their plans or unsure of their next steps. That's really timely you're asking me that. So I've had some interviews and stuff for, for academic jobs. I've come to the conclusion that I, I don't really want to be an academic because for me, and everyone's different, the... I, so I've published quite a bit during my PhD. I'm quite a driven person, but it taxes you. I think there needs to be a fundamental shift in how how academia operates. And, and you know, like I, I think folk need to be. We hold academia to such a, you know, like put it on a pedestal. And I don't think that's right. And I'm going to probably get shot down for that. But I don't think it's right. You know, I mean, uh, there's some fabulous science done by folk who aren't academics either. You know, and I think we need to. There's another silo that needs to be broken down. But uh, don't and, – and so a couple of things here. So don't compare yourself while you're in grad school. I used to compare myself to everyone else. And like they published X and Y. Don't do that because these are apples and oranges. Your, your project is going to be different than someone else's. So, for instance, if you're a remote sensing student, you may get your data very quickly. But if you're a biology student, it may take you a long time. Right. I mean, so 100 percent. Right. If you're tracking fish, much more labor intensive, you're doing telemetry studies, even with our underwater camera work. It was relatively like we, we didn't have to tag fish. And that was by design, of course, it, for the question we were asking. But ideally, you tag fish because you get more individual stuff. But, you know, that took an entire summer and it was a lot of work. 
Whereas if I go and I can, so I'll take off my, my quasi ecology hat for a second and put on my, my remote sensing hat. We published a paper, myself and my mate Barrett, who's actually a prophet in Dalhousie, Barrett Kerlick, wonderful human. We published a paper in remote sensing about thermal, um, excuse me, absorptivity of the of remote sensing sensors uh, for thermal infrared. And we, we cranked that out really quickly. But the, if we were, so we've been also working on an adjacent paper not adjacent to that, but just something, um, a different topic where we're, where we did a meta-analysis looking at spawning habitats of different fish gills around the world, which is super neat, actually. I can send it on to you when we're going to submit it. Um, it got rejected a few times, but I think it's because we didn't explain what frog numbers were or fruit numbers, whatever flavor you're having. But that paper has taken two years, right? <laughs> so this is the thing, like when, when folk are looking at papers or someone's CV, you know, I, I don't, I used to be very um, cognizant of it and I always check my Google Scholar and I always check my research gate. And I'm sure that's what folk do. You know, like I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one. But as I've matured, if you can even say I have, um, <laughs> I've kind of come to the recognition that it's not really about quantity. It's rather about quality. And, and, and yeah, so don't compare yourself to other folk. And I guess... Don't I don't don't idealize um, academia because there's other pathways. Um, so, for instance, my company now, I'm taking things I learn in, from science and academia, and I'm actually applying it. So, I'm doing something for me. It gives me uh, kind of warm feeling in my belly because I'm actually helping the system. I feel like the natural system. There's more to life than academia, I suppose. I'd say. <laughs> And it's difficult, right? It's, it's hard because you, you're working on that timeline or expectation. And then, of course, like if you're in grad school, you're not getting paid very much. Your social life is put on hold, everything. like So there are real things like, yeah. 100%. Also, I'm not being negative. I, I would not. I love my PhD. It was fabulous, right? It was a wonderful time in my life. But I'm saying there's, as you, there's other things in life, too. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, for sure. And, of course, I simply must ask if you're keeping up with Six Nations and cheering for the green and white. <laughs> yeah, I actually watched all the games this weekend. <laughs> um, yeah, geez, Ireland were looking really good. They looked really good, and and I was in the second half. But for the second half, um, you know, like Ireland were uh, their 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 ability to just absorb defend their uh, attacks is unbelievable. Uh, Ireland are playing France next week uh, in Dublin, and I'm going to be my brother and I will definitely watch that. Uh, yeah, it'd be nice if we could uh, beat France, and if you nearly beat France yesterday. So yeah, that's pretty. That's exciting. I'll follow up with you after the Scotland Ireland game, and we'll talk then. All right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Already. So the toughest part is over. You've run the gauntlet. That is my questions. Now we get to hear your final five, which is a group of five last questions that each guest who joins us on the Fisheries Podcast get asked. All right. Nice and easy. What is your favorite fish? That's a hard one, Reed. Um, so I, I, I really like short roast sturgeon, but uh, I think brook trout are my favorite. They're just so beautiful. I love them. Yeah, brook trout, I think. Definitely underdogs. Get overshadowed by salmon too much. For sure. <laughs> what is your favorite memory from your career so far? Actually, so I, I, it's, a, it's become a series of memories. So every year, I, I found this spring, groundwater spring on the Canes River, and it's always six degrees Celsius. So it's deep groundwater, doesn't freeze in the winter. And actually, that's not true. It, it, in the autumn, when you have rain, this spring actually increases in temperature while everything else is going down because you've got the rainwater mixing with the groundwater, which is colder. Um, so this this is this side is my best memory because it's got it's a wonderful refuge for brook trout. But I always go there, and this is going to sound silly, 
but I always go there and check in with it every year. I put my thermometer in there and it kind of, it, it kind of balances me because then I'm like, okay, all is right in the world. And that sounds silly, but it's like my kind of chat with the river. I go and talk with the river and uh, yeah, I put my thermometer in there and I'm like, yeah, everything is okay. And what is your dream job? I'm probably doing it right now. That's awesome. Yeah. And then I also woodwork. <laughs> so, but my, yeah. So my brother, my brother is uh, quite a woodworker as well. So two of us are kind of do that. But yeah, I like truthfully, I'm, I'm, I'm just an incredibly lucky person. Um, and look, it's some part of it, but you, like, you also work hard to get to get where you go, right? But um, I'm incredibly lucky that I get to work with just amazing people. Like you spoke about Tommy. Tommy is one of my heroes. Like he's just like, I get to hang out with that guy every day. Like it's incredible. Um, and then like our lab manager, Kayla Wallace, who's just an absolute, just a gem of a human. So there's, there's just a wonderful folk that I get to hang out with. And then to do stuff like with fish, as I say, like I'm not a biologist, but I'm quite a keen angler. Um, Dave Roth is there. We've got Carol. Like, I mean, yeah, just the people make this just amazing. And the questions are wonderful, right? Like you can get to ask questions and kind of figure things out. It's cool. I may be biased, but I also think they're pretty cool. And Tommy is also one of my heroes. Yeah, <laughs> he's a legend. Yeah. Yeah. If money was not an issue, what is a project that you would love to work on? So I'm really interested in um, this is not related to fish at all, actually. There's Australian pelicans. And and they appear and dis, they just appear randomly in Australian uh, Ayers Lake, I think it is. Uh, so this is an ephemeral lake. Uh, appears in the series. I'd love to study those guys. I think like to get the mechanism of why. So there's a couple of papers on um, quantum mechanics of um, um, European robins, how they navigate around. So they found that at the quanta scale, that these robins, the, the electromagnetic radiation comes through their eyes, and they can actually gravitate via that up to the to, to the pole. So I'd be really interested to just look at that cryptochrome, so that that protein that's in their eyes. Salmon have it too. Um, kind of look into that, like those linkages. But you'd need some like serious high-end gravi gravimeters and gravity meters, excuse me. And yeah, so that would be pretty neat. Of course, useless, but neat. <laughs> Who would have thought there'd be overlap with randomly appearing Australian pelicans and salmon? That's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> More you know. I know, right? And finally, if there was one point or principle that you would like listeners to take away from hearing you speak, what would that be? Irish people can't say the word three properly. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't know. Like, just be proud of what you do and be happy. Treat people kindly. So, Anton, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It was a pleasure to hear you speak about your field and all the fascinating work that you do. And I'm sure that our listeners will be just as curious as I was coming into this. If people want to learn more about you and what you do, how should they go about doing so? I've got a, a research gate page and you know, I'm actually in the process of launching my company website. So that'll be osolivanecohydraulics.com. Um, and, and there, it, like you can email me or whatever. So my email address is aosulliv at umb.ca. Uh, uh, and then my company one will come thereafter. But yeah. Amazing. If you would like to get a hold of me, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at fisheriespod or old-fashioned email through feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream us from Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or thefisheriespodcast.com. Don't forget that you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some of our fisheries podcast merch available on Teespring. I'm Reed Sutherland. Thank you for listening to the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, be happy with what you do.